hello and welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant. Joining me on the podcast, we have Dr Alex George discussing male suicide, social isolation and educating younger people about mental health needs. Alex is a doctor, author and mental health ambassador for the UK government. Since starring on Love Island in 2018, he has campaigned for more attention and funding to go towards young people's mental health, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. In the UK, men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women, and in the Republic of Ireland, they're actually four times more likely. We will also be discussing the mental health of new fathers since our last episode on Daddy Blues last month. This podcast contains frank discussions about suicide and may not be for everyone. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're here today to talk about World Suicide Prevention Day. And I just wanted to get your opinion on the change in language surrounding suicide, because we used to say commit suicide and now we say death by suicide or, you know, someone's killed themselves. Why do you think this change in language is important? Well, I think it's, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's, it's honestly a huge um, uh, honour and I think the Royal College of Scottish do an amazing job um, and uh, I think you're great advocates for, of course, of this space, but in a really positive way. So I just want to say thank you, first of all. I think the I think the language is incredibly important. I think we should talk about on different levels, not just about around the word suicide, but actually emotional literacy, I think, in mental health language in general. But when we look at the term suicide in the past saying committed suicide now we've changed by to like death by suicide for example or died by suicide it's really important because it's such a heavily uh, laden word to say committed you know in, in 1961 they changed the, the the suicide um act they changed that that language because previously it was seen to be a crime to attempt to take your own life or you know and, and if you were found to have attempted to take your own life it was something that could be punishable by 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 prison um and it's kind of really really shocking i think a lot of people don't realize that that is the case and that's really what it means when you're saying committed suicide and the message that can send to people who feel suicidal or feel really low or have had suicidal ideation is really really profound and i have had patients say to me in a and e um when they've said that they felt you know kind of uh, suicidal. They've said that you know they've heard healthcare professionals using the word committed, and 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 the, and the way that that can make them feel. So it's really important that we're kind of really aware of what we're saying and the impact that can have. And I think if you extend it and use it in different scenarios as well, you know, people saying um, things like um, patient is bipolar, that patient is bipolar, or X Y Z name is bipolar. They're not defined by the illness. They are this person who has a diagnosis of bipolar and and just categorizing, make people feel laden by that diagnosis is, is just simply isn't fair. You know, it's it's like saying diabetic patient It's not. It's a patient who has diabetes, for example. And I think it's just really important to do that. And a big part of stigma around mental health is this kind of labeling. I think that happens a lot of the time is feeling that you become a diagnosis, which is is not true. And there's some amazing people that, and, and I guess the big thing about that as well is that the feeling that, okay, I, you know, am I now this diagnosis? I can't be successful or be happy or do things in life and achieve my goals. Well, actually, you know, a lot of people do manage to do that. And as, you know, I've got a colleague who, who works for me, a consultant actually very, you know, friends with, and she has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Uh, and she's an incredible consultant. She's very open about having that, but she's not defined by it. And I think that's what's really important about language, and particularly when we're talking about the word 
you know, committed suicide. And I think, you know, for me personally, obviously, well, when my brother um, took his own life uh, just over a year ago, you know, that to me, you know, he didn't commit, he didn't commit a crime. He, he, he suffered with an illness and there's a big difference. So language and medicine actually have a much deeper relationship than we think. Yeah, I, th- I think hugely. And if you actually look at what we're trying to do at schools now um, is start integrating uh, emotional literacy in an early age, a very almost basic literacy of, you know, what are thoughts, what are feelings, what's emotion, why do behaviours sometimes link to inner feelings and emotions and what's the connection, what do we do about it? And I think starting young age and helping people understand how to vocalise in the right way what they're experiencing and, and expressing things the right way is so important and um, you know a big part of I think some of the issues that we have around mental illness in particular and vocalizing it and, and, exp- and expressing them you know in, in I guess more broad sense of how we feel in terms of health and well-being I think in the barriers and emotional literacy, emotional literacies is a huge uh, issue uh, and I believe strongly you know I, I wouldn't you know, be doing the role that I'm doing if I didn't I believe strongly that education is a very powerful tool and through education, we can change things like the way that we use language and help people use the right language and understand what words mean and how to convey what they're feeling really well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Also, I did an English degree, so I always feel like if English and medicine can get together and have yeah. a good time, then that's great. Yeah, and I also think, you know, on, a brief, on a brief point, I think it's um, it's like kind of, you know, evolution in some ways. I mean, a lot of the medical words and terminology we use it just creates barriers sometimes and we use fancy words for things when you can just just explain them in much more simpler um uh, uh terms and and i think that you know when we speak to patients you know we, the way that we talk about things and talking on a level with someone i think is very important as well so from that perspective even just that doctor patient relationship it's you know, let's level with people and speak to them in a way that's understand. You know, people can understand and, and, and say, avoid labelling terms. Really, absolutely. And also, some medical literature. A lot of medical literature was created a really, really long time ago, and it hasn't kind of reached that modern level yet. Agreed. So today, we really want to talk about male suicide, especially in how there's just such a dramatic difference between male suicide and female suicide rates in the UK and in the Republic of Ireland. So men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women and in the Republic of Ireland is actually four times more likely so it's just such a dramatic difference in in those levels and why do you actually think that is? So there's been a huge amount of work I guess in this area and I think it's fair to say it's it's very complex um, and there's a lot of factors but one of the factors I think that we can tangibly look at and potentially change is the kind of cultural expectations and cultural factors around what a man should be and how a man should be in modern society because it's an area that is definitely you know it, it really is playing a big role into why we see that that men often um take you know a, well in terms of suicide often more violent forms of, of suicide they um the attempts versus uh, the rates of of suicide you know, they generally take less attempts before they are um, managed to die by by suicide. It, it kind of gives you, I guess, an indicator of that maybe th- there's a real difference between men and women and, and, and why that might be. When it comes to, I think, the stigma side of things, I think I feel that's a really big issue still uh, for, for men in, in particular. 
Uh, and if you think of like societal norms and maybe culturally the British culture of like a man should be like stoic, resilient, bullets bouncing off them. Men don't talk about feelings. You, you know, that, that emotion, showing emotions is a sign of weakness. This is actually real stuff that people have kind of been passing down the generations, you know, for a long time. And although I think we're making really good progress, that stuff doesn't dissipate, dissipate overnight. And I think you still see young people coming through with that feeling that they must be stoic, they can't share. And, and actually, you know, looking at what happened to my brother, you know, he never said how he felt. He never reached out at all to anyone around him. And I think there's obviously a huge conversation around things like funding and, you know, we want to see CAMS funded better, psychiatry, mental health as a whole. You know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you all on that. But if people aren't able to don't feel able to reach out, then even the best funded services in the world can't save them. And in my brother's situation, unfortunately, he didn't feel that he could. You could reach out, you know, and I think a big part of that is around this feeling of, oh, it's a shame. There's a shame associated uh, with it and, 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 and being able to vocalise it. And I guess there's a big element, of course, when we go back to the emotional literacy and, and using the right words, you know, for how you're feeling and finding the words or finding the way to express yourself. I think that's a big big aspect of it as well you know we can't we we can't ignore the issue i mean the fact that three three times and four times more men uh, die by suicide it, it's just shocking you know and, and we've got to think about these are preventable potentially preventable you know causes of of death and i think a big part of the answer comes down to education again you know again from a young age getting people are comfortable talking about the way they feel uh, understanding their, their 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 feelings and emotions knowing how to manage those and feeling comfortable about accessing support you know and knowing where to go because a lot of people don't know where to go when they need help and yes of course as i said we need more funding we need more money into it but actually there are a lot of amazing organizations doing a fantastic job that are there to help but the people aren't aware of them i'll take for example school children the charity shout is amazing it's a text service um that, that you can text in and have a response via text by someone who's trained to to respond and help you through that process. Why is it amazing? Because a lot of young people don't want to pick up the phone. They don't want to go and see the teacher. They don't want to walk into the GP practice. It's a fantastic service. But if children aren't aware that that exists, they're not able to access it. So we're potentially missing out on a group of people that we can help. And that's why I think the education, not just for stigma, but helping you know, people understand different ways that they can reach out and get support is is very important. And particularly, you know, say a young boy, a young man, you know, maybe if my brother, if he'd been aware of shout that he could have accessed in a different way, would he have accessed it? I don't know, maybe, but we've got to give these people the chance. Particularly, we know that some of the highest rates of suicide are amongst farming communities, and particularly farming communities, say in Wales. Look at the way that maybe that culture is. I mean, that you want to see a stoic culture, you know, really uh, kind of traditional male attitude to what men should be. Look at farming a lot of the time, you know, and and um, and I think a lot of the charities, there's, there's specific charities that work with farmers and trying to kind of connect with them because often sometimes they can be quite isolated I guess in, in their work and their lifestyle and things and and the opportunity I guess for expression is different but I think looking at different parts of the country we're in different stages I think of, of, of breaking it down but I feel like in the last year you know with all the terribleness of the pandemic I think we're talking a lot more and I, I know some people feel is talking the answer I think it's part of it I think it's part of it and I think part of realization that that the problem exists and that the why it's happening is a big part of fixing and I think through talking and through educating people young and old I think that's a big part of the, the solution. And our last podcast that we did was called Daddy Blues 
And that was basically looking at a short film that one of our psychiatrists made called Daddy Blues. And we don't speak about the mental health of fathers very often. What kind of pressures do you think there is on dads? Well, I think if you look around, um, if you were to look at an area that's stigmatised, it's a really big area, you know, that actually, um, you know, you're a new dad, that you should be tough and should be strong. And if, if you're affected, how can, you know, you didn't have to have the pregnancy, how can you be uh, finding things hard? It's the it's the mother of the child that's gone through the, the, the trauma. There's so much kind of uh, around that, that people that men are sometimes made, I think, you know, not intentionally, but sometimes unintentionally made to feel, well, fathers, I mean, you know, to feel that, to feel that way and um, when you actually look at it it's believed it's a lot more common than we realize I mean um, Tommy's uh, the charity Tommy's did a lot of research into this and, and, and it's believed up to one in ten could be affected by um, daddy blues and even a severe end of the spectrum I get well labeled in that way but in the severe end of the spectrum uh, you know the, the postnatal uh, um, depression and I think we need to recognise that a little bit more. That 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 any any change, any big change in your life can impact you, and and in the way that you feel. And I guess if we look at it in a certain way, and we step back with this scenario for a second, imagine you've got a new job, and you're moving from Newcastle down to to London, you're moving to the big city. It's a great opportunity. You've got a new job, but it's a massive change. You're losing you you're leaving your regular contact probably with your family and friends. You're going to a new place that you don't know. You've got new added pressures with the stress of the job. There's all sorts of change in your life. And we know the big times where you're experiencing big change, even if it's something that's perceived to be good, can actually have a profound effect on your mental health and your well-being. And, you know, we know those trigger. We talk about transitional points of going to school, going to university, leaving the university, a job, the workplace, changing jobs. These are all transitional points. And a clearly big transitional point is fatherhood. So having a new child the financial pressures that can come with that, the responsibility, the change in your social, you know, you may be not going to do the same social things with your friends that you were, you may become more isolated. It's a huge change. And I think, and I feel really passionate that we need to understand that it's it's fathers that are affected too. Uh, and if you imagine even in a scenario where, you know, the mother might have postnatal depression, that's probably going to have an impact on the mental health of that father as well so I you know I think it's really great that you know that podcast and I think highlighting that issue is really powerful. So just going back to education we touched on this a little bit before some doctors do experience the death of a patient by suicide do you feel when you're training to be a doctor that there is enough education around this? So I went to med school um, in well at, at Peninsula Medical School, which is now Plymouth and Exeter, the separates. And I must say we had quite a modern uh, approach to um, patient interaction into, I guess, these kind of issues. And I think we did have quite a bit of training around dealing with death, um, not so much around specifically suicide. And I've actually been speaking quite a lot with med students across to you know various medical schools. And I think the general consensus that we probably need to do more around mental health and you know a big part of um, a big part of I guess the misconceptions around being a doctor is that oh it's just psychiatrists that deal with mental health and GPs you know A and E doctors I, I'd say you know I was shift the other day I'd say half the patients I saw had either it, the, the presenting complaint was related to mental health or was a significant component of why I was seeing that patient. You know, and even if the presenting complaint, the reason that there isn't about the mental health, often it's tied in. So if someone comes in with a heart attack, 
they've had a cardiac, you know, they've had a cardiac uh, incident, they've had a myocardial infarction. It may well be that the problem is physical, but the impact on their mental health could be huge. And, and so that connection, I guess, um, uh, between the two. And I do feel that it's important that we're trained properly and prepared for that to realise that the two are so interconnected. When it comes back and we loop back around to talking about um, suicide, I don't think we do enough. I think we probably should do more and preparing because it's such an emotionally difficult situation. I have seen a few patients who have died by suicide either before or at the time they presented to the A&E department and been brought in by the ambulance. And it's really traumatic. It's really, really hard. And it, it, it's something that we we all, I think, find you know really difficult to, to kind of get over. And you know, I think something really important that we've kind of learned is the the importance of realizing how tough it is and talking and we've been debriefing and I think we're getting better certainly at dealing with traumatic situations like that. But you know, we, we need to do more. I think that's you know, especially for new doctors coming through, I think it's a real shock when it happens. Maybe there isn't any amount of education that can actually prepare you for it happening. Yeah, I think that I think the to me, I, I, I it's more about how to deal with it afterwards and the, the the kind of looking after yourself and debriefing more than prepare i don't think anything can really prepare you for that fully you're all i think you're only human to be shocked by it and be upset by it but it's how you handle that you know knowing who to go to in the department how the department's going to handle that situation happening what the debrief process is what your support services and counseling services are available to talk about that you know a big thing you know particularly in the last year we've seen so much death i mean there's no two ways around it right it's been really bad and in that sense and i think now more than ever we've actually realized how much we need to care for our staff you know and look after our staff and i think being aware of where to go when these things happen. Don't just shrug it off and think, you know what, well, I just need to crack on, you know, I'm this resilient uh, A&E doctor or doctor, you know, you're human uh, and you shouldn't be expect yourself, you shouldn't expect yourself to just shrug it off. You know, it's perfectly normal to feel what you feel. And, and I think knowing where to go and get getting support for that is, is vital. When do you think we can start to teach kids about suicide? Because perhaps it should start earlier than high school. Yeah, I think this is an area that's got a lot. This has there's been a lot of conversation uh, around this. I think truly the the answer and, and the most the, the best person to answer that will be the I guess educa you know, education psychologist really looking at when the most appropriate time and age is. I'm very keen that we particularly focus around, as I said, the emotional literacy, understanding you know the the kind of basic principles of well-being, of what what is mental health, what's mental illness, what's well-being, what's self-care, how does you know, and learning the principles of how someone should look after themselves. And as they get older, I think we do need to teach because sadly, you know, we know that 11, 12 year olds are taking their lives uh, by suicide. This, these things are happening, you know, and so if these are happening, then we need to have the education to go alongside it. And I, I think that cultural change again, I think there's been a lot of fear in the past of, oh, if we talk about suicide, then then children will take their own lives. Well, we actually know that the evidence doesn't support that theory. Um, but there is got to be an, an element of it when, when is appropriate. But I, I hope this is looked at intently over the next couple of years, because I think we probably need to review it. This year, due to COVID, a lot of university students were very isolated in halls. That was really difficult to cope with for anyone who's just got moved away from home. Do you think there's something that universities could do to reach out to students and make them feel like they're included if 
there is kind of like another pandemic or another form of like this kind of grand isolation that happened last year? I think that I've done a lot of work with universities over the last year and I speak to as many as I possibly can and students and and it is a group that I've really really been worried about to be perfectly honest because and then actually when we looked and I was working um, kind of with number 10 around this at, at like the groups that have disproportionately been affected by the pandemic I think no one would argue that students are certainly among that group the young people often um, that have been moved to a new area that they don't know maybe don't even have friends yet especially they're starting at university and they're isolated in, in often accommodation and things and i think that's been so so hard for them and i think we shouldn't we shouldn't for a second ignore that i also do think that a lot of universities did you know some made mistakes and i think errors have been made but i think a lot of universities have tried they've really tried hard to support their students in what is really a very difficult circumstance and i think one of the things i have heard is that students would like to be included amongst communication and decision making more and I think that's something a lot of universities agree and accept I think it's an obvious point that if we're looking at the welfare of students let's involve the students in the decision making in that process you know and I think that'll be a um I'm, I hope if God, God forbid we don't go back to one of those situations but I think that should be something really considered as time uh, moves forward for sure yeah, I definitely think if you're sitting alone in your halls and you're not having, well, you're having all your decisions made for you and you're feeling extremely isolated, you would lose a lot of, you'd feel like you've lost a lot of control. That's a huge aspect. I think a lot of us feel that way about control, but particularly if your movements are controlled to that level and... Yeah, it, as I say, I really, really feel for for, for students through that, and, and and what they've been through has, has been has been really, really tough. And uh, I, I, that's why I spent so much time actually talking to students around, you know, what to do, how to cope, how to look after themselves through those times, where they can go, what sort of support services have been. I've tried to kind of speak to them as much as possible to kind of get that message across to you know see a what can we do more to support them, and and also what's available. You know, I, I I'm really passionate about. Um, making sure that access to support should be easy, it should be drop-in, it should be available to anyone that needs it. And one of the projects that I'm working on in my role um, with, the, with uh, the, the government is I'd really like to see early support hubs set up across all communities across the UK. Um, and this is this is a project that um, I'm working uh, on in collaboration with the whole mental health coalition, including all the charities and everyone that's involved in the mental health coalition. Uh, and what we're calling for is the government to, to fund the hubs. Um, so this, these would be for under 25 walk-in service, um, whereby you know, you'd self-refer, you'd see um, a youth worker who you go through why you know why you're there, what how things are, what things are going on in your life, and then they would be able to triage you almost into the appropriate support. So having access to um, counselling therapy, talking therapies, um, uh, educational advice, uh, uh, career advice, citizens type bureau advice, even sexual health, we're considering would be an important aspect. So a wraparound service, and I think. We know from comparing to other services that are out there already that the evidence is really good. Um, the YX Youth Access Model, which is similar in certain parts of the country, has an efficacy, well, a, an improvement rate of a psychological distress improvement of around 60 to 70 percent, you know, across the board for those who present, which is actually really good when you compare it to other interventions. And so, you know, I, I think when we move forward, we need to think about these community-based things that, you know, that provide support to all people, but even, you know, especially universities, that could be a really important thing moving forward. Those students that have been affected, they need somewhere to go that they can walk in in a place that's not clinical, they're not going to be judged. 
of course they can reach out to the university but some people don't feel comfortable doing that and i think that's why something like this project i think could be really powerful I feel like the concept that you're speaking about there of self-referral is also really important because it brings the control back to the service user and it also means well we know when our own mental health is severe enough to need to speak to someone. I think so and I, I think the other aspect as well is that even looking at GPs I mean the other flip of the coin is that you know for GPs they of course can refer to services but a lot of people in the early stage with emerging maybe mild to moderate mental health illnesses or needs that might not be the appropriate place to send them. And therefore, if you refer so a young person to the CAM service, child and adolescent mental health service, it might not be the appropriate place for that person at the time. But if we can intervene, you know, at an earlier point and in a wraparound service that is much more immediate, that could actually, um, for some people, prevent them requiring such, you know, those services. And I, I, I believe that is a that is an area that we really should look into. Of course, you know, CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, the mental health services were developed and designed for the 5%, right? It's not designed for the 100% that's currently been sent at them, you know, and I think that we can't always expect those to fix everything. We need to look at the community as a whole and look at how various services can plug in and actually help different people at different points in their, in their life, really. Yes, it's not a one-size-fits-all. No, absolutely not. So bringing it back to you, how do you personally look after your own mental health? I think it's been something that's become more important, I think, over the years. I first experienced, I guess, some difficulties in my own mental health when I was at university. I became quite lost within myself. I lost interest in, in studies. I stopped eating well. I was sleeping terribly, wasn't exercising. I recognised that I was going into a place, really. Luckily, I spoke to my mum, actually. It was a fantastic source of support, as other mums are. And helped, she helped me kind of direct me into the right 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 kind of support and, and, and direction which made a huge difference actually to my own mental health and, and that was my first interest I guess and a lot of the ways that I felt better was actually by practicing you know um, I guess the well-being that we talk about and I think for a long time we've underplayed rather than overplayed the impact and power of um, what we can do in each day I think we've actually gone oh you know uh, you know going for a walk how does that help you actually you know I feel very strongly that the small changes individually where they can add up and make quite a significant difference. I mean, if you look at the treatment for most mental health illness, an element of lifestyle change is in almost every single one. It's not just down to just one treatment, it's the combination. So what I mean by that, I guess for my own, like now my own life, I, I look at everything in my life and how things can impact. So am I sleeping well or am I run down and tired and that's going to affect my mood? Am I eating well, providing en energising my body throughout the day, not having peaks and troughs of energy will affect the way I feel? Am I getting enough natural light? Have I gone for a walk to be around nature and have that calming effect? When's the last time I did some exercise? You know, and what I've tried to do is build in my routine, in my day, all those components. So when I get up in the morning, first thing I do is go outside, have a walk. And the benefits for sleep, your know, circadian rhythm, morning sunlight's great for setting a circadian rhythm and, and sleeping in the evening. Going outside, moving is also movement we know is great for mood and for calm, being around nature. You know, and then during the day, I make sure I, I have breaks. You know, if I'm working at home a lot, I'm having breaks to again move and get up. Um, I practice self care because I, you know, I make sure that each day I do something I enjoy. I love, I love my bath bombs, uh, which people might find quite funny, but um, it's great for me because it makes me stop. It just chills me out, put some music on. It's a really good unwind technique for me. So if I've had a stressful day, 
I, I do that. I talk a lot as well. I speak to my family, I speak to my friends, I speak to my girlfriend. Uh, and all those aspects, I guess, come to play. And they all seem as little small things. But if I stop doing all those little things, I notice a huge difference in the way that I feel. Uh, and I'm not saying these things are there to cure illness. That's not what I'm saying, of course. But are they an important part of your general well-being? I, I think so. I love speaking to my mom and dad. Like life would daily life would not be the same. And they're both occupational therapists, so that's also very very handy as well. Do sound advice. Yeah, exactly. Very practical advice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, the theme of this year's World Suicide Prevention Day is creating hope. And it's creating hope through action. So how can we create hope within our own communities on a small level? Yeah, and I think this is something I'm, I'm really passionate about. I think talking about mental health is very important and raising awareness in the day, but it's also about tangible action. I think it's very it's something, you know, we can all do something, I think, that can help this movement of improving the country's mental well-being and health. I think we can all do something, and even if it's big or small. I'll take for an example um, what we're doing uh, at A&E in Lewisham. We are... Uh, we have a um, uh, one of the consultants is as what is going to be the well-being champion for the department. Um, I'm not being the champion because I'm I can't take on any, any more roles at the moment. Um, they're the well-being champion, and then we're having mental health first aiders in. in so we've got volunteers who are obviously working uh, in the trust who are going to be mental health first aiders, and between them they're going to be running well-being sessions, thinking about creating a well-being room, looking at way staff well-being as a whole, uh, campaigns to signpost for support networks, looking at the working environment so what we're talking about is individuals that are actually trying to do a little bit even if it's just something small to to help that community so if you take that example and look at any stage in life whether it's school university what can you do to get involved in a project that helps you know both your wet mental health and well-being but the well-being of people around you uh, it may well just be even being more aware at work to check in with people or check in with your colleagues you know, the Ask Twice campaign, time to change, you know, we ask people, how are you today? A British answer, yeah, I'm fine. You know, take that moment if your gut instinct is that and your the cues and social cues and behavioural cues make you think, well, they're not, they're not themselves. You know, take action and ask them in a time and a place that's appropriate. You know, I, this is, I get the feeling that you're, you're not yourself. Are you sure you're okay? Because it's amazing how often, in, you know, my working day, I notice that we don't check in on people that much. It's not about running around all the time and checking in, but... When's the last time you asked your colleague that you sat next to how they're really doing and, and, and what's going on in their lives? So there's lots of little ways you can do it. Just think of an action that you can take, a tangible thing that you can do that might help yourself and other people from that day. Yeah, it's a bit like what we were talking about before is um, new dads thinking that they have to be a big breadwinner. I imagine that people in who work in health, who work in the health sector, think they have to be really strong all the time mentally and physically like they probably think I, I can't get sick I can't you know what I mean like I have to be strong because I'm I'm in a caring role I'm in a caring given role yeah yeah and this is something that's that's huge um and I think it's let's be honest it's a problem amongst the NHS and we are seeing huge and rising rates of burnout and uh, amongst all, all the whole spectrum really of, of of healthcare providers and health professionals within the, within the NHS and I think we need to really wake up to what's happening and realise that we need to look after the carers. We've got to care for the carers in order for them to be able to perform their jobs well. Um, and, you know, in some sectors of, say, medicine and some sectors, uh, rates of burnout are up to nearly 80 percent, I believe, which is which is huge. 
which is absolutely huge. And and for the workforce and for provision, even forget the human level, even for providing and doing the work that we're doing, it's it's a real worry. So we need to kind of focus on that. And I hope it's another area that I am hoping to push more for is just to think a little bit more about how we look after our staff you know what tangibly can we do that will you know not tokenism is one thing i don't want to be we don't want to be tokenistic about things we need to make tangibly make a change and support people in a way that's meaningful um you know it's it's a difficult space but it's a really exciting one as well i think there's going to be big changes of the years to come and i really hope that we can really bring it forward into the 21st century you know a huge thank you to dr alex for coming on the podcast for world suicide prevention day which is on the 10th of september If you would like any more resources on suicide, please visit our website www.rcpsych.ac.uk forward slash suicide. You've been listening to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant.